Father, we are thank you for the, thankful for the gift of your Son, the glorious Savior, Lord of heaven and earth, head of all creation, preeminent one, glorious one, the one in whom we have placed our trust because of the sovereign work of your Spirit in us who have trusted you. We do pray that you would continue to unfold for us the glory of Christ, uh, the majestic one, the one who is even now at your right hand, our Lord Jesus, as you are our righteousness, our mediator, our hope. And we pray that as we meditate on you, that we would be conformed to you in our desires, in our wants, in our life, in our character, that you would perform your work, not merely of salvation, but also of sanctification, making us holy and anticipating that day when we'll know that holiness in its fullness when we're in your presence and conformed ultimately to the body of your glory. That is our end. It is our hope. And we ask you to encourage us with that truth. And we pray these things in your matchless name. Amen. Well, open your Bibles up, if you will, again to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation uh, chapter 1, we're coming back again to verses 4 through 8. This is now part 2 of what will be uh, three parts of looking at this opening section. And the reason we're taking a little bit more time here in the opening section is because uh, it's laying some foundational themes, some foundational realities that will be unfolded throughout the rest of the book. So we're slowing down just, just a bit. And as a reminder, John is writing... Uh, to churches, a message from Christ to the churches who are suffering various kinds of persecution and he's writing to encourage them and it's encouraged God's people throughout the ages. It's an encouragement they needed, it's encouragement God's people have needed throughout the ages, it's an encouragement that we need, the church needs today and eventually we'll need more and more as the hostility against God's truth ratchets up, ratchets up. Uh, as time progresses onward toward the very end that John anticipates for this creation. Somebody sent me an, a link this uh, week to a new law passed over in Canada as part of the, the movement of the LGBTQ+, in which they want to outlaw anything related to conversion theory. I heard this months ago related into the UK and some things that were passed in the parliament. Essentially, under the umbrella of conversion theory, they want to ban anything that would confront and say homosexuality is wrong and that there's any need to change. They see that as a kind of abuse, a kind of mental abuse, a kind of uh, spiritual abuse, emotional abuse, and they want to outlaw it. In the UK, it even went so far as to saying that, children, that parents only had the right to try to teach their children contrary to that agenda up to a certain age, and then they would be held accountable legally and be able to be prosecuted. And we know those kind of things are coming to the church here in America. Those things are already on the periphery, but they'll get more and more to the center of our life here as well. And so we know that there is a mounting kind of persecution, a mounting kind of resistance that is coming to the church here. We've enjoyed freedom. We've enjoyed comfort for a long period of time. And and we hope that God will preserve that for the fruit of the gospel as long as he chooses to do so. But we also know this world is not our home. 
And those are the kind of things that some of these Christians and Christians throughout the ages have had to face as they've either been in the midst of a kind of persecution or they've seen it as dark clouds on the horizon that they know are coming to them. And and they needed to be prepared and, and scripture prepares us for that in a variety of ways. But ultimately in the book of Revelation, by pointing us to the glory of Christ, by pointing us to the reality of what is coming, but him who reigns supreme over every ruler, every nation, every culture, and over our own lives. And so John takes us there this morning and throughout the book of Revelation, particularly in verses four through eight. So let me read verses four through eight, and then I'll briefly remind us of what we saw last week, and then we'll move forward. Beginning in verse four. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And with this, John brings us a greeting from the risen Christ, a message that he himself received from the Father. And it's a greeting that's meant to encourage and strengthen and embolden his people in light of what God is going to bring on them. So let me, by way of reminder... Remind us of where we were last week, and and namely this, that he is writing to them with the encouragement, first of all, to say that, hey, there is a judgment that is to come, there is persecution to be endured, but you are those who stand within the grace of God and are at peace with him. And that was the first point, that he is emphasizing to us the gospel of grace and peace. Now, this was a common introduction into the epistles, a message of grace and peace, and we see it in many of them, commonly in the epistles of the apostle Paul. Here it takes an expanded form to remind us simply of this, that we are those who stand in the favor of God by his own doing. That this judgment that is coming upon this world, the judgment that we should be a part of, for by nature we are no different than those who are left in their state of sin and rebellion and will bear the consequences of it. But we are those who have received grace. Grace is God's goodness to those who deserve wrath. We deserve wrath as with the rest, but has received his goodness of salvation and mercy and forgiveness in Christ. And because of that, we are at peace with God. God is at war, war with a rebellious creation, but we, as those who are in Christ, are at peace with him. And we are to find encouragement in this. Secondly, we noted God's glory in the person and the work of Christ. This this promise of grace, this message of peace is grounded in the very nature of God. And he begins with the Father, and he will move from the Father to the Spirit and to the Son. But beginning with the Father, he says that he is him who is and who was and who is to come. 
is giving an echo here of God's very message to Moses and the burning bush that came, bush that came from the angel of the Lord in Exodus 3.14. He was about to deliver people who were in slavery and were in bondage. And the name was to remind them that I am the covenant God, the God who is, the God who is the only true God, unlike any of the false gods of the nation of Egypt. I am the God who alone has power. I am the God who created heaven and earth. And I am the God, more importantly, who will act on behalf behalf of my people. I will take action to, toward you and deliver you from the slavery that you are in. And so it's a reminder of the, to them and to us that the God who makes these promises is the God who can fulfill them because he rules over all things. And then he moves to the Spirit and he says this message comes from the Father and from the Spirit, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. The Seven Spirits of God. Now, that's an interesting title. We looked at that just briefly last week. I had a couple conversations afterwards, as I'll just mention here, where some had mentioned the connection or the possible connection to Isaiah chapter 11, which we read in our scripture reading last week. Uh, some see the link there between seven graces of the Spirit on the Messiah that will rest on the Messiah as being a connection to the seven spirits here. That is, that is possible. There's debate whether there's seven graces mentioned there. But nonetheless, that is a possible connection. However, the connection that is more immediate and that John is making that we talked about last week uh, within the context of Revelation itself, and particularly as he mentions that same title over in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Revelation in this heavenly scene of worship. Instead, he's, he's most likely connecting us to the message of the Spirit and the title of the Spirit back from the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 4 where he, he's speaking of a time of coming deliverance in relation to the Messiah and he mentions the seven lampstands that are before God and then he mentions that it is a message that comes to his people that declares that they will not overcome by their own power but by his Spirit. Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power but by my Spirit says the Lord of hosts. And so here... This imagery is used to remind the people that the strength to overcome, the strength to endure to the end, and the strength and the power that will ultimately overrule the kingdom of the beast is going to come by his spirit. A comprehensive look and a comprehensive title for the power and the working of the spirit in the life of his people. And then he moves to the son. And that's what we began last week in verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is a majestic look at the person then of the Son. And the first description he gives of the Son is as the faithful witness. The faithful witness. And we noted that he is faithful in what sense? He's faithful in that he was faithful to the mission to which he was sent. He was faithful to reveal God and to speak the words of God without fear and without fail. He was faithful to fulfill the mission of God to offer his life as an atoning sacrifice on the cross. So he was faithful unto death. And he was faithful in doing that as an example then to, to provide an example then for us and those who would also follow him unto death and not love their life even unto death. He was faithful witness. He is a faithful witness to the purposes and the work of God. And he is a faithful example for us to follow, to follow him. And then he moves on to this. And this is what we'll begin, where we'll begin this morning. He is the faithful witness and he is described as the firstborn of the dead or the firstborn from the dead. 
Now, what does this mean? What does it mean to say he's the firstborn of the dead? Weren't others resurrected? We have resurrections accounted in the Old Testament. We have most famously the resurrection of Lazarus, who was brought back from the dead after having been in the grave for three days. What does he mean here? Well, let's look at it by its parts. He is the firstborn of the dead. The firstborn is a magnificent title here for the person of Christ. And it, and it has two senses. It has two ideas, this term, for those of you who like to know the words behind. It's prototokos. It has the idea of firstborn, just that, first to be born. It can mean first in terms of order, birth order. And it can also have the idea of first in the sense of preeminence, of superiority, of priority, of position, and of glory. In terms of birth order, in Exodus 3, 2, it's in many places, but God says this through Moses, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the firstborn offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast, it belongs to me. And he's simply saying there, the first male to come from the womb of a woman belongs to the Lord and it is to be redeemed. There was a sacrifice that was to be offered for it. And that is the first in order, the first in order. And the same is said of Jesus, that he was the first to open the womb of Mary. She was his firstborn in that sense. It also has the idea of preeminence, the preeminence without reference to birth order. So he uses this term, uh, a Hebrew equivalent, uh, but in the Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, and he says, Israel is my firstborn son. My firstborn son, it doesn't mean he's there the only nation. They were unique in their standing because they are the nation that God formed and entered into covenant with. They were the nation that had a special relationship to God. In that sense, they were preeminent among all of the nations. They had received his grace, his covenant, his word, and so forth. And so they were firstborn among the nations. They had a privileged position. The most clear reference, however, to this idea that focuses on preeminence, and we'll come back to this, it's in Psalm 89, verse 27. And that refers to King David. And he says this in Psalm 89, 27. I shall make him firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, David was not the firstborn, first king of Israel. That would have been Saul. But he was preeminent among the kings of Israel. He was the one whom God entered into a particular covenant with, the Davidic covenant, through whom the Messiah, his line, the Messiah would come, remember, Christ was the son of David. And as such, David stands then preeminent among all of the kings of the earth. And so the idea there is of preeminence, of preeminence. And that is what he's emphasizing here. He is the firstborn of the dead. And again, he was not the first to ever be raised from the dead. Others were raised. Lazarus was raised. However, his preeminence comes primarily in two ways. What does it mean to say then he was the firstborn and how does it relate to preeminence? First, in this way. His was the first resurrection of its kind. It was the first resurrection of its kind. And as such, it became the ground or the, the, the very source of every resurrection that would come to those who are in him. You remember Lazarus? Lazarus died. He was three days in the tomb. Jesus specifically waited. He wanted to make sure that everybody got the hint. He's dead. 
And so he comes to the grave and he comes with the purpose to raise Lazarus. And he does. He calls Lazarus. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes forth. He's still bound in his burial wrappings. And he has to command the people who are in shock to unwrap him. But Lazarus came forth. He was raised from the dead. He was brought back to life. But the difference with Lazarus is this. Lazarus was brought back to life in the same body subject to death that he went into the grave the first time. Lazarus was brought back to life, but Lazarus lived out his days. Lazarus sinned during those days. And Lazarus still died and was put back into a grave. In other words... Lazarus is an example of a resurrection, but it was not the resurrection that is promised to those who are in Christ. When Christ was resurrected, he was resurrected in a glorified body. And in that sense, it was the first of its kind, it was unique of its kind, and it demonstrates then his preeminence. He was not subject to death again. The death That he died, he died once for all to sin, and the body in which he was raised was never subject to death again. Romans 6, 9, for example, says this, Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Sin, death, shall not be master over him. It was a death he died once. The body that he was raised in could never die again. And that is the body that we who are in Christ and who know Christ will be conformed to. And in that sense, it is the origin. It is the preeminent one. It is the source to which we will be conformed. So Philippians says this, the Lord Jesus will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has to subject all things to himself. First John says, you're familiar with these words, We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. In a a similar way, using a different term, Paul says it in this way, that he was the first fruits. Again, he was the first of that kind of resurrected body. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And this is the glory of his resurrection. As Adam was, was created And he had no sin, he was created without sin, but he had the possibility of sin, and therefore he had the possibility of bringing death upon himself, and he did bring death into the human race through his sin. But with Christ, it's not so. And those who are in Christ and raised with a body conformed to his glory, it's not so. When we have resurrected bodies, we will no longer have the possibility of sin and no longer the possibility of death entering into God's new creation. It is perfect. It is holy. It is bound. It is inextricably bound. It is forever bound to the glory of Christ as the risen Messiah and as the mediator. And so it is a glorious resurrection. It is one in which he has preeminence and preeminent glory. Now, I want to just... I do want to unfold this a bit more because sometimes there is confusion on this. If in Romans 8, he says this, and then the confusion sometimes comes in this area, in this way. We hear firstborn and some go, well, okay, and this is where some of the ancient heresies came in that said, well, Christ is the most preeminent among God's created beings. Christ is the preeminent one among all of God's creation. So yes, he is honored among all of God's creation, but he is not himself equal to God. 
He's firstborn. And so they go, well, see, clearly there it is, the firstborn. But that is not, again, how he's, this term is being used in relation to Christ. And we won't belabor this, but I want to give you a bit of a panorama. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, he says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And there the idea is this, is that even before the creation of the world, even before anything was brought into being, man was created after the image and the pattern of the Son to be brought into his own relationship with the Father. Adopted sons, as he'll say earlier in Revelation chapter 15, we have adoption of sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So Christ stands preeminent of those who will be resurrected, and it is a preeminence, however, that he holds to himself as the son who accomplished redemption, but extends to those to whom he redeems and brings into this fellowship with himself. So he is then the firstborn from the dead. It's from the dead. Now to say from the dead that he is the firstborn from the dead, then highlights that this is the work that he did in his full humanity. It's a statement then of his being truly human. Only as a man could he die, and only as a man could he rise, and only as a man could he accomplish the redemption that God had determined. But only as truly God could he atone for sins and stand as the head of creation and redeemed humanity. So the first part of that, firstborn from the dead, is that he has preeminence as the one resurrected from the dead, the first of its kind, a resurrection in a glorious body that all will be conformed to. But it also points to his preeminence as the God-man, as the God-man. And Again, let me just jump around to a few places. In Colossians chapter 1, you're familiar with this. It says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. In verse 18, it says he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything, that he will come to have preeminence. He will have a unique glory. He will have a special glory as one who is not only raised from the dead, but as him who he said earlier, through whom and forth through whom all things were created. In the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So to say then that he is the beginning, the firstborn of creation, is with this idea that he is the source and he is the cause of all creation and as such he reigns supreme and stands supreme with a unique and supreme glory as the eternal son. As the one through whom all things were made and for whom all things were made. As he revealed this glory both in the incarnation and in his resurrection he possesses the glory and position of preeminence over all peoples, all nations, and all things. Let's just take this a little more because John references this in Revelation. In Revelation 3.14, he says this, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and the true witness, speaking of Christ, the beginning of the creation of God. Again, what does he mean by this? The beginning of the creation of God. 
The term translated beginning there, again, for those who like the terms, is RK, and it can have a variety of meanings. In this context, it's translated here as beginning, but it can have the idea of first cause, it can have the idea of founder, it has the idea of source. In each one of these, it has the primary sense of this, that he is the founder, he is the first, he is the cause, he is the one out of which creation came into being. He is the beginning of the creation of God. He is the source of the creation of God. It's another way of saying that he is the one through whom all things were created. And John makes this clear in Revelation by attaching the nature of Christ to the nature of the Father as the eternal one. And we're going to wrap this up, but let me make this clear. He says in Revelation 21.6, referring to the Father, this... He says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water without, of water of life without cost. He's referencing there the Father. The Father is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the one already described who was and who is, who was and who is to come. He is the one described to Moses as I am. It's simply to say he exists. He has existence in himself, life in himself. All power and glory and authority resides in himself. He has no beginning. He has no end. He depends on nothing. Everything depends on him. He alone is God. That is the Father. The same is said, however, of Christ in chapter 22, verse 13. Of Christ, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And here then as well, we hear the echo of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of men. He is the first and the last. He is the eternal one. He has a glory as the eternal son, and even as that glory shines uniquely and brightly through his incarnation, through his exalted state in a glorified body, it is what he bears as the Son. As a matter of fact, John is going to get a taste of this in the vision that will come later in verse 18 when he says this, when he, in response to seeing the risen and the glorified Christ, he says, Jesus said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. In other words, I am the one from whom life comes. I am the one who through my mediatorial work, through my taking on humanity, through my completing the work of the Messiah and the one who is risen to an exalted state to be head over creation, to be Lord over all and to have the ultimate authority over life and death over heaven and hell. And all of that authenticated, verified, affirmed in the resurrection. 
So to say that he is the firstborn from the dead is to say simply this, that he is the preeminent one whose glory in the resurrection from the dead authenticated him as the very glorified body that we will be conformed to, that he is the one also is shown to be the God-man, the one from whom life came, the one through whom life comes, the one in whom all authority and headship over creation and the kingdom has been given, and what he has been given is consistent with who he is as the eternal son of the father that's the idea of it so john moves to that and we'll expand this even more he is then as the firstborn of the dead as the preeminent one as the preeminently glorious one the ruler of the kings of the earth The ruler of the kings of the earth, that means every king, every person in power, everyone who has ever held power, everyone who will ever hold power, including the coming beast, the antichrist, and the false prophet, Christ reigns supreme over them. He is the ruler. Now in the Old Testament, God alone held this position, Yahweh. Let me read to you one passage. And I, Psalm 47, this is gloriously stated. You can just listen. But in Psalm 47, he says in verse 2, For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues people under us and nations under our feet. In verse 6, sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises for God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a skillful psalm, God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. The end of verse 9, for the shields of the earth belong to him, God is the king of the earth. And yet we had been prepared for a sharing, a reflection of this rule and this headship, this kingly authority at the very beginning of the Psalter in Psalm chapter 2. Why are the nations in an uproar, the people devising the vain things? The kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed They want to cast away his authority, but he says in verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs and scoffs at them. Verse 6, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession." You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now there's one sense in which this was anticipated in the Davidic kings that came through his line. But none of them fulfilled this declaration of the Father and of God. This anticipated one who was to come who would rightly take on this authority and be uniquely called the son in whom it could say of today I have begotten you. Today I have begotten you. Now we're not going to get into the details of that. Some see that as a begottenness that happened in the incarnation. Some see it as a begottenness that happened in the resurrection. Better to see here this as a begottenness that happens in eternity. Today being an eternal today. Today being that 
always he is the begotten one of the Father. The resurrection, the incarnation, the risen glory of Christ was merely an affirmation. It was a vindication. It was a public declaration of the glory of who Christ was as the Son. He didn't become the Son at the resurrection. He didn't become the ruler at the resurrection in terms of his inherent right. It was his because he was the Son and it was eternally granted to him by the Father. So in one sense, it is a declaration to say he is the ruler of the nations. In one sense, because he is the owner of all things. He's the owner of all things. They have been handed over to him by the Father. This connects with all things are through him and for him. Just listen to some of the statements of Jesus. And we're going to look at two parts of this. Listen to the statements of Jesus while he was on earth. I'm just going to read them. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. All things, everything, every nation, every king, every ruler, all of the redeemed, everything, even the unbelieving whom he will judge because all judgment has been given into his hands. Everything has been given into his hands. John 13.3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. He then washed the disciples' feet. John 16, 15. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. In his prayer to the Father, all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine and I have been glorified in them. And then he had prayed before that, I want to share in the glory. I want to know that glory again that I had with you before the world was. So what he has, the glory that he has, he has and the rulership and the authority that he has, he has by nature of his very own person as well, that he is the eternal son, the one who is equal to the father in glory. Though the father, by divine relationship, is the one who had planned the glory of Christ through his incarnation, through his accomplishing redemption, through his resurrection, and yet it is a glory that is consistent with his eternal and divine nature as son. So it's fitting that this would be given to him. However, there is another sense in which it wasn't until after the completion of his work as substitute, the affirmation of his work in the resurrection, that he came into the full possession of what was his, granted to him by the Father in eternity past, until after he had completed his work as the Messiah, after he had completed his work as the sinless son who accomplished redemption for his people. And so it is in that sense that Jesus could say to his disciples then after the resurrection, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. All authority has been given to me. Why? Yes, because he is the son but also because he is the son who in the incarnation, in the fullness of his humanity, obeyed the father without sin, accomplished redemption, was resurrected from the dead, and therefore also earned the kingdom by his own merit, by his own perfection, and by his own glory and for the glory of the father. He had done it. He had earned the right as well to receive from the father what the father had already in eternity past determined to give him. 
namely a kingdom and a people through whom he would bring into most intimate fellowship with himself all that are redeemed in Christ. So here he is then, the firstborn from the dead, because it was impossible for death to hold him. He is as the firstborn, the preeminent one, the glorious one from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the owner of all things. He is ruler by virtue of his possession of all things as the son and as the son who was faithful to the mission and in the fullness of his humanity accomplished redemption and earned a kingdom received the promise of the Father, which was the Spirit, which was poured out on the day of Pentecost to establish the church. And the one who will ultimately show himself to be ruler of the nations, not only when he establishes his kingdom, but he removes from his kingdom every rebel in the judgment that is to come. So he is the ruler of the king of the nations. He's a faithful witness. He's the firstborn of the dead. He is the ruler of the nations. And that's why when he returns, he bears this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I don't know about you, but it is laughable to me, not laughable in the sense of the actual consequences of suffering that it can bring on people, but laughable in the sense of its personal arrogance when we see these leaders who take such pride and self-importance in the militaries that parade before them or politicians that say have such self-importance to do policies and make statements and promote ideologies that stand in direct conflict and rebellion to the God who rules over them. He rules over them. And Christian, we really need to lay hold of this message. He rules over them. They are not supreme. Any authority they have is a borrowed authority only to fulfill God's purposes. And they will be held accountable for it. This is the message that he gives to us. This is the message where we are to find comfort. And he goes even more. And he shifts now from the focus of the glory of Christ in his own person to the glory of Christ in relation to us. This one who is supreme, this one who is the Lord, this one who is the faithful witness, this one who is preeminent from the dead, this one who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And look what he says in verse 5. He is also the one, what does he say? Who loves us who loves us and released us from our sin by his blood. And this, in some ways, is the most amazing part. And if only we could grasp this more fully. He is a king who loves his people. He reigns supreme over the nations. He has absolute authority. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And if you belong to him, he loves you with an infinite and eternal love that cannot be shaken. It's a present tense, you can see that. He doesn't just love us in the past. He doesn't just love us sometime in the future. Right now, currently, Christ loves you if you belong to him with the love that is intense and is as perfect and as full as any love that he could ever love you with, ever will in the future. It's even a love that was determined to be set on you in eternity past before he created anything. If you belong to him, he loves you. And if we could grasp that, that would transform our lives it would transform our, our courage to be more courageous. It would transform our loves, the things that we delight in. He says he loves you. Can you imagine to those who are going to be thrown into prison for 10 days, they would need to hear that the Lord and the ruler of the nations loves you. He hasn't forgotten you. 
He has a purpose that involves your suffering, but he has not forgotten you. It is what Jesus told, or John tells us, again, referencing John 13, before he did the most, well, before he humbled himself and washed the feet of his disciples, he said this, glorious statement, Behold, the feast of the, just listen, the feast of the Passover was at hand. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, his hour for what? His hour to be betrayed, his hour to be deserted by his own disciples, his hour to be handed over to the apostate Jewish leadership who would hand him over to a wicked Gentile ruler to be crucified and publicly shamed. His hour had come. He knew that and he knew that it was to happen soon. He knew his hour had come that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The end is telos there. That has a variety of translations. Here it could mean he loved them even to the end of his life on earth through all of his days in his incarnation, or it could have a broader sense of that he loved them with completeness, with fullness, with a wholeness, and that's how I tend to take it. He loved them to the end with a wholeness and a fullness and completeness that would go far beyond him washing their dirty feet, but would instead move beyond that act to the greater act of giving himself as a sacrifice for their sin. He loved them to the end, and Christian, he loves you to the end. One said this, commenting on John 13, out of that love sprang the mighty act of love which follows, but it did not exhaust its infinite depth. It endures now as it did then. He loves you. It's a love that will be demonstrated in the future when he makes those who persecute his church now one day bow down to them. Listen to chapter 3, verse 9 in his message to Philadelphia. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan and say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet. And what is he going to demonstrate when these enemies of Christ and the enemies of his people come and bow down before their feet? Look at the second part. And make them know that I have loved you. I have loved you. The ones they hate, I have loved. I who am the ruler of the nations. I am who, who am the maker of those nations. Paul echoed something of this back in Romans 16. Let me just read it briefly. This is an echo of it. He says in verse 20, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. This love is manifested now in how he sustains his people in persecution. Oh, what stories there are that, that we hope if we ever face the same, we would know as well of those who are in the darkest place, those who have to endure the most intense kind of suffering. We're able to endure because of this. They knew that Christ loved them. They belonged to him. And the knowledge of that love, in many cases, enabled them to love even those who were persecuting them to wish for their best. Like Stephen who was being stoned and said, God, don't, don't hold them against this. Don't hold this against them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't really get what they're doing. It is the love of God that sustains his people. However, the greatest manifestation of this love is in that he has provided for us redemption. Look at what he says. Who loves us and 
demonstrated this love is the idea, showed this love, guaranteed this love, affected this love, made this love eternally our possession by this, released us from our sins by his blood. We have no comprehension of how devastating sin actually is. We really don't. Even believers, even a mature believer doesn't really grasp how devastating sin actually is. It was such that God could destroy the world with a flood. It is such that if God were to leave us to ourselves, yes, even you, Christian, if he would have left you to yourself before coming to Christ, you would eternally suffer physically and consciously in his presence and know only his anger for your sins. Sin is so devastating that even the most mature believer is so far from the actual experience of the holiness of Christ himself that we're very little different than those around us in some ways when we compare ourselves to the holiness and the perfection of Christ. How devastating is sin? If you are a Christian, you know that even with the Holy Spirit, even with regeneration, the indwelling spirit, eternal life in you, even with the word and with the promises, you can't go a day without sinning. And God, over this period of time, reveals more and more sin to us. Sin is devastating. So this is the glorious truth, is this, that the God whom we sin against loved us. He showed us grace. He brought us into peace with himself through the cross. He did it. It's by his doing. It's by his doing you were in Christ Jesus. He did it. He planned it. He accomplished it. He did everything. Even your faith is a gift from God. Even your trust in him is sustained by God. Even the certainty that what he began will be perfected until the day of Christ Jesus is because of God. At every point. He loved us and he released us from our sins. What does it mean he released us from our sins by his blood? It means he's released us from sin's power to condemn us. If you are a Christian, be reminded, as you know, you will never suffer the consequences for your sin. You'll be disciplined. You'll die, as will others, physically. But you'll never suffer the consequences of having sinned against a holy God. Never, because Christ bore it. He was delivered over because of our transgression. He was raised because of our justification, showing that there is nothing left necessary to satisfy the righteousness of God. To use a fancier word, he is our propitiation. He's our propitiation. He's completely satisfied the righteousness of God. He satisfied it by bearing the condemnation of the law, and he satisfied it by fulfilling the law for us. He's raised because of our justification. He has done everything for us. Romans 8.3 says this, just listen, for what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh, God did. In other words, the law could never do anything but condemn you because, as Paul has already argued, sin is in him. So that which was good actually became a means of his own condemnation to show how sinful sin is. Even as a believer, he says, I see the principle of sin dwells in me. The law can never sanctify and the law can never make one righteous. 
And so he says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, that is our sinful humanity, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Whose flesh? The sons, the incarnate sons. He condemned sin in the flesh so that if you are in Christ, you have no condemnation at all, period, zilch, it's done. Never, ever, ever is there a sin to be paid for by you in relation to God's holy law. If you are outside of Christ, that's the promise. That the sin that you bear can be forgiven completely, totally, 100%. He released us from sin's condemnation and he released us from sin's enslaving power to control us. If he merely would have died there and forgiven our sins, that still wouldn't be much of a help. Because we would merely sin again. And keep on sinning. But he did more. He not only bore the condemnation for our sin. But he gave us eternal life. And for those who are in Christ. He gave his spirit. So that the enslaving power of sin. Could be broken. And so. Let me just read verses you're familiar with. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone. As slaves for obedience. Romans 6. To some, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, in other words, you always obeyed sin's dictates. You always were subject to the impulse of rebellion and sin within you. You were at hostility with God and were unable to submit yourself to God because you had no inherent power or desire to do so. Even your goodness was a reflection of your rebellion outside of Christ because it was a trust in your own goodness and a rejection of the righteousness of God and a rejection of Christ. And so even then, even in the best of men outside of Christ are slaves of sin. And he said, but you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Slaves of righteousness. He says in verse 22, Now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life for the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he enables this by the power of the Spirit. It's not even of you. He says this. It's the one who has the spirit, he says. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We are under obligation then not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. And it is by that spirit that we have the testimony of our adoption. And it is by the Spirit that we have the guarantee that he who foreknew us, who predestined us, who called us, who justified us, will glorify us. And in doing so, we have the certainty that we can never be separated from his love. Listen to this, to those who suffer. Again, familiar words, but listen. I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing 
will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he loved us and because he released us from our sin by his blood. That is by his atoning death. It's what Jesus reminded his disciples of. We looked at it at the Christmas devotional and just mentioned it. When he shared the Last Supper, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat. This is my blood. This is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. Embrace it. And they did. Later, they didn't understand all of that now, but after the resurrection, they did. And that was the message that we believe and that they proclaimed. He himself bore our sin in his body that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And this is the fruit of his love for us. You know, sometimes as Christians, we can see a doctrine abused. And so we go in the the opposite direction. And and if you kind of look at the history of man, and certainly the church isn't free from this, the history of the church, the pendulum tends to swing from one extreme to the other. One extreme to the other. A common way that we do that in our circles is because... Those within what is identified often as the charismatic movement. And by this, I'm going to refer to the most extreme side. Not We have charismatic brethren whom we love and share salvation with. And then we have some who have gone beyond what is written and aren't. But the point is this. is Because we as the church and the reform side of the church particularly react against what sometimes is paraded before us in charismatic. We go so far because of the abuse of the Holy Spirit to almost deny any subjective or powerful work of the Spirit. And are almost hesitant to talk about him and his work. That happens. Sometimes it's almost as if we get saved and while there's a doctrinal acknowledgement of it, there's not really a lot of practical reliance upon The Spirit. Sometimes that happens in the church. We do that with the love of God because we see the love of God so abused. We see the love of God eviscerated of it, the holiness of God. And so the love of God then becomes just this sort of salve to my conscience when I sin rather than that salve that also propels me on to obedience and holiness and to follow Christ, which is what it truly does when understood. The love of God sanctifies when we grasp it. It doesn't merely remind us of forgiveness but it compels us on towards obedience and to trust and to live faithful to the one who has released us from our sin because he loved us. And so I think sometimes Christians might get a little nervous or not want to emphasize what Paul himself prayed for. He says he prayed for this, Ephesians chapter 3. He says that he would grant you us the riches of his glory to be according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love listen may be able to comprehend that is to apprehend in your soul to get in your soul to perceive to take as your own by faith to realize within yourself with all of the saints What is the breadth and length and height and depth in this? To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. To grasp it, to know it, to lay hold of it, to realize how infinitely, eternally, and intensely you are loved by God if you belong to him. And he will sustain you. So this is a word of encouragement. Let's move to the last. 
He says he's the firstborn, the preeminent one of the dead. As such, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth, him to whom all things belong, him who created all things, him through whom all things were created, for whom all things were created. He who not only has this right by virtue of his divine nature as the eternal son, but has this as the eternal son incarnate who lived perfectly as humanity and won this right as Messiah and King and Lord over the nation and all of creation. This is the one who loves you, who has released you from your sins, who has borne your condemnation, and who sustains you and upholds you in your faith as it is tested and as you receive persecution, as temptation comes, he will sustain you to live for him and to be faithful to the end and not love your life even to the end. And then he says this, he's made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. Now this I'll do quickly. Jesus is the king of a kingdom given to him by the Father. Ultimately it is a kingdom made up of those who are the elect. He's made us a kingdom. He is the king, what he possesses by nature. We share with him by grace as we under his lordship and under his kingship reign with him in the kingdom that he has purchased and the kingdom that he has granted to us. Now, in the broadest sense, the kingdom of God refers to his rule over everything he's made. So the kingdom of God just refers to his absolute rule. But there is a narrow sense in relation to the work of Christ in which it is the kingdom that came. It is the kingdom that we enter into. It is the kingdom that we have been granted in Christ, those who belong to him. And this is the kingdom. He has made us then in that sense a kingdom. He has made us citizens under his kingship, under his authority, under his rulership. And it is that kingdom that we who know Christ are in. We are citizens of the true kingdom. Listen to what he says, Revelation eleven fifteen. The kingdom of the world has become, by implied, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Verse 17, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and begun to reign as these judgments are coming out. So what Christ has now by possession and right, he will one day exercise on earth and future in the full glory and manifestation of his authority. And so, in the same way, we who belong to him, what we have by right in Christ now, we will know in its fullness of when he returns. Just a little hint of that. In 1 Corinthians 3, he, he argues against their factions because he says, look, you're arguing about these things. And he says, don't you know that all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God? Everything is yours. They don't know it by possession now. He had chided them earlier. He says, I wish you had become kings. I wish you were rulers because it means I would be ruling with you. But he knows that's not yet the case. It will be in the future what we possess as those who belong to the kingdom of Christ now by right, we will one day know in its fullness when our king returns. Just listen to the way Revelation talks about this. Let's give you a couple of verses. Revelation 5, verse 10. He says this. This is the a praise, a song of praise to Christ, the risen Lord. He says, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will, notice the future tense, they will in the future are going to reign upon the earth. 
just a footnote. We're going to get to these things. The kingdom and those who belong to the kingdom of Christ are not enjoying the fullness of that reign now. It is a reign here on earth. It is a reign that we will share in with Christ on earth. It's not spiritually in the heart of his people. It's not with the redeemed who are in his presence now. It is a reign on earth that we will enjoy under the kingship of Christ. And it's coming. It's future. It's not here yet. He says the same thing in Revelation 20. And this is our hope. Just listen. In verse 6, blessed and holy are those who have a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. Revelation 22, 5, and there will no longer be any night. They will not have any need of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. John says, if you went down to verse Nine, in Revelation 1, he says, I, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God. John, as an apostle of Christ, was at that time enduring persecution. And yet he says, I am a part of this kingdom. And yet he anticipated as well, this reign is going to come. This kingdom I'm in will know its fullness and its glory in the future time upon Christ's return. And until then... He will know the perseverance which is in Jesus, that sustaining grace of God. And so that's the encouragement that the citizens of the kingdom need because here's where we stand as Christians. And this is what's unfolded for us drastically in Revelation. Colossians 1, remember, we've looked at this in the past. He delivered us from the authority translated often the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And if you belong to Christ, if you're in the kingdom of beloved son, if you have experienced that transfer from the domain of darkness, a slave of sin, a servant of Satan, and now enslaved to Christ, redeemed, forgiven, indwelled by the spirit, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, if that is you, then you are in direct conflict with the world. You have to understand that we do. Again, we're so, and, and I'm included in this, so I, this is me. We're just so used to the comforts we have in America. Those comforts can be taken away. Many of our brethren who are suffering in the world now don't know those comforts. But we have to understand this, even in our own context, in, our, in the, own, the circumstances God places us. If we desire to live godly in this present world, we will suffer in some measure, in some way, according to the sovereign purpose of God, because we are in conflict with this world. That's where the persecution of the church has always come. Rome didn't care that they worshipped somebody named Christ. They didn't care about that. What they cared about is this worship of Christ precluded them from giving any supreme authority to Caesar. They were in conflict with the Roman kingdom and authority. You can worship however you want. They didn't care. They had all kinds of God. But you have to burn incense to Caesar. You can worship how you want as a church, but you have to say, if some boy wants to call himself a girl, you can't do that. Why? Because that culture doesn't accept it. Right? You can say that 
Christ is head of the church, but you have to say the king is head of the church. And so you had the covenanters who said, no, we won't do that. Christ is the head of the church. And they were persecuted for it. You see, you're always, the church is always going to come in conflict with a world system that is under the domain of darkness. And so he says, you're a kingdom, you're a kingdom of priests to his God. And by being a part of this kingdom, you're in conflict with the world which is in darkness. He said to the leaders who wanted to kill him, Jesus did, you want to do the desires of your father. He was a liar from the beginning. And so it is with the kingdom of darkness, always wanting to do the desires of the master. He says you're a kingdom, but this is a kingdom. While that is our current state, the future is is that we will be the ones who, when Christ is revealed, we will be revealed with him as belonging to him and reigning to him. We have to remember that. This isn't our home. Next, he says, you've made us a priest to his God and to his Father. Let me just summarize it in this way. Although, so I want to move on to next week. It's simply to say this, that to say the priest had access to the presence of God. They had access to the presence of God and mediated that access for the nation by taking on the sacrifices. They also were responsible for being teachers among the people. God blames the priest when the people go astray because they didn't seek after them. They didn't teach the law of God. When the priesthood was corrupt, the nation was corrupt. And so that was the priesthood. And he says, you are priest in what sense? Because we belong to him and by belonging to Christ and having his life in us, we represent him to the world, both in the holiness of life or a light of the world, salt of the earth, and by being a voice for the mouthpiece of the king and for the gospel. And so he tells us that as Israel, when we're not going to, you can look it up on your own. In Exodus 19.6, Israel was to be a light to the nations. In Isaiah 43.10 and 13, they were to be a light to the nations. They were to be a witness to the nations. They were to be a voice to God. Israel failed in that in the Old Testament. Christ came and was the fulfillment of what Israel should have been, him being a light to the nations, but in a glorious sense. He was risen. He sent his spirit. The church was formed. The church now, he says, is a kingdom of priests. We are a light to the nations, he says in 1 Peter chapter 2. What was given first to Israel, accomplished by Christ, is now accomplished by those who belong to Christ. And we are a kingdom of priests to his God. One day Israel will know that again when the 144,000 are saved and they take and they preach the gospel to the world and many are saved who come out of the tribulation, every, every tribe, nation, and tongue, and those who were beheaded for the testimony of Christ. So it will come again, but right now he says, you are that. You who know him are a kingdom and priests. Those are distinct, and yet there is a bindedness of them. They are inextricably bound. To be in the kingdom of God is to be a priest to God. To be a priest of God is to belong in his kingdom. It is to have his life in you, and it is to live according to our nature in Christ, new nature, and to declare his glory to the world. And therefore, he says, to him be the glory and the strength forever. Let me simply say this. That's the end of it all, isn't it? His glory. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. And I'll just make a note here. Christ prays. It's the quick statement. 
Christ prays, if you remember, to his disciples. He says, I pray, Father, that they may see my glory, the glory which you have given to me. And he prayed also that they would share in this glory, that we as his people would share in this glory. How do we share in his glory if he's the preeminent one, if he's the eternal son, if he's the accomplisher of redemption, if he's the firstborn among the dead? How do we share in his glory? It's his glory. We share in this glory in this sense when he says that, we, that they would share in my glory and at the same time see his glory in this way. As the eternal son determined by the plan of the father to come and redeem and accomplish redemption for his people, God added to himself a glory consistent with his eternal glory, but added to it a new reflection, and that is God as redeemer. God as redeemer in Christ. He has a glory as redeemer. He has a glory as savior. He has a glory as a head over a people, as a church, and we share in that glory as the fruit of his work. In that sense, we share in the fruit of of his work and therefore his glory and yet always gazing at him who is our God and our king and the accomplisher and the bringer of it, the Lord Jesus Christ. We share in it and yet we give him supreme and glory. What he has by nature, we have by grace. And so we delight in giving him the glory. We delight in seeing God raised up. We delight in those things that bring us low and lift him high. We delight in those things if we knew him. Well, we'll pick it up from there in verse 7 and 8 next week in light of his return. Let me close this in a word of prayer and just simply do this. Invite all of us to ask God to reveal the glories of these things to our heart that we might live for him. Let this shape the way we talk about COVID and vaccines and political leaders. Please let it shape and form our attitudes towards these things. And if you are outside of Christ this morning, know that he invites you to be in Christ. It is a salvation that is open to everyone who comes with bended knee and sincere faith to know him. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace to us who know you. And thank you for your grace that extends even in the form of warning to wake up those who are asleep and dead and darkened to consider their end it's an invitation to say turn to Christ be saved from the wrath to come know the God who created you for himself and for us who do know you Lord would you unfold to us these glories that we could think rightly consistent with reality consistent with the way things are and are to come which are revealed to us through the revelation and through all of scripture. We need your spirit to be our teacher. We ask you for this, that you may be honored, enjoyed, loved, and served in this world. In the name of Jesus, amen.